Hey, BA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, hey, VA fam, it's Mandy here, and I cannot wait to introduce you to this week's guest. If y'all don't know about my new friends, Julian and Kirsten Saunders, let me tell you a little bit about them. They are the Atlanta-based, yes, my hometown, I love it, Atlanta-based co-creators of the popular lifestyle blog and brand, Rich and Regular. They come with so much experience, y'all. They paid off $200,000 of debt in just five years, and after they did that, they actually walked away from their careers in the hospital hospitality and marketing marketing industries and quit before the age of 40. Since then, they launched their popular web series called Money on the Table, which you guys can check out at richandregular.com. And they also host, they're our podcast uh, uh, brother and sister, they host the Rich and Regular podcast, which you can check out right after you listen to this one, okay? That's your assignment. Go check out Rich and Regular. Julian and Kirsten, thank you so much for joining Brown Ambition. Thank Thanks you for having so much. Us. It's really great to be here. Yes. I'm excited. So y'all wrote an entire, the reason we're talking today, I mean, there's been so many reasons to have y'all on, but this is a very special episode because y'all are launching your first book, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Called Cashing baby. Out. <laughs> Call, yes, the book, baby. <laughs> Called Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. When I saw this title, I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> Like, this is my, t- <laughs> this is my favorite. Let's talk about quitting. Yeah. Yes. And I was just saying, like, as a couple, as a married couple, you guys also share a son named Bo. What a beautiful, cute little name. Um, I'm just amazed because my husband and I feel like we cannot do the dishes together. We can't clean the house together without getting into some kind of philosophical debate about how to do it. And y'all wrote an entire book together. What was that like as husband and wife? It was challenging. It was a slow start. (laughs) Originally, we tried to write it together, like every chapter kind of sitting together and writing. And that process took entirely too long. And then we broke it up. Like you write a chapter, I write a chapter. But we have very different voices and we have very different perspectives. And so a lot Mm. of the work was trying to find the shared voice and then figure out kind of how to get all the chapters done. But all in all, it was a good experience. It was just, there's not a lot of co-authors out there. So it was just a bunch of trial and error and us trying to figure out what works for us. Well, there's co-authors, but then, but it's it's not, I, I can't think of a married couple that I've interviewed who's written a book together. That's such a different dynamic. It's yeah. one thing when you've hired a ghostwriter or someone to kind of download your thoughts right. and then they're going to kind of put it in your voice and whatnot. But I mean, congrats. So what made you guys for your first book want to write this book in particular? You know, there are so many reasons why. Um, I'll just give you one of the more recent ones. Uh, and this is not that recent, but it was like a couple months ago. I remember sitting in the doctor's office, um, t- taking my mom to the doctor. 
And I remember waiting in the waiting room and there was an older gentleman, a black man. He might have been around 65 years old. And we were in the thick of writing the book at that process, but I'd already kind of thought about it. And he was sitting there reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I was reminded, because I hadn't thought about the book in a really long time, but I was reminded that that book was still relevant and that it was a cultural reference point for a lot of people. Like when they think money books, it's like literally one of the first ones that they think about. And I was just thinking about that. I was thinking about the moment that we're in, not just in terms of the Great Recession, but also you know, what's been coined as a social reckoning or just this greater sense of awareness in terms of representation. And I felt like we deserved something like that. Uh, I felt like I could have used something like that leading up to the early stages of my corporate career. I think Kirsten feels the same way. And so uh, we know the power of telling our stories and people seeing themselves uh, and hearing it in our own voice. And we just knew that that was something that one, we enjoyed doing uh, and we're really passionate about. And so we were willing to undertake this, uh, this process and we're grateful that we were able to do it. Yeah, so together y'all paid off $200,000 of debt and you did that prior to leaving your jobs, right? So clearly working, like having a nine to five was instrumental in you guys building, you know, your wealth and, and able to pay off that debt. What was your strategy there? Was it just, you know, every extra dollar we are going to be putting toward this debt? And like, what kinds of debt were they as a couple that y'all were tackling? Yeah, it was a combination. The The lion's share of the 200000 was our mortgage, but it was also car notes, student loan, tax debt, credit card, pretty much any kind of debt. Was, yep. Yeah, <laughs> I might be forgetting was, something. Yeah, you said it, tax debt. Yeah. <laughs> so, Which you include, so you paid off your whole house. Yeah, we did. Which sounds oh, crazy dang. given the, uh, the housing prices now. only be done in Georgia. Now. Right. right. <laughs> we had a 2008-priced house. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. Ooh, get the discount post-housing market crash, I hope. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. Okay. But our strategy was to look at paying off our debt as giving ourselves a raise. We had two choices. You can either kind of go hard at work and try to make more money and get all the extra responsibility that comes with that, which we did. But we also spent just as much energy, time, strategic thinking, and and conversation around the idea that if we paid off our debt, if we could just get rid of a couple of these expenses, you're talking about a couple extra thousand dollars every single month. And in order to make that leap in the job market, you would have either had to pivot out of your career choice, out of our career choice, and into another company, or take on an extraordinary amount of responsibility. And so we looked at paying off debt as a, a lifestyle choice for us and that's how we tackled it. As soon as the money would come in through our every, you know, bi-weekly paychecks, we would shave off a top and, and we did a little bit of everything in terms of methodology. We did the envelope system, we did the avalanche method, we did the snowball method, we did zero-based budgeting, <laughs> we tried everything and they worked in different periods of our lives and we just kept trying until eventually it was, it was gone. And you were raising, because your son is about as old as it took you to pay off that debt. Well, so you had a... <laughs> he, was born, right? he was born in the last quarter. So he was, uh, he was born in 2017. And then we finished paying off the debt the same the year after. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were... So were you guys making big career moves to increase your income to help you pay down that debt? Was that one of the strategies that you used? Uh, for more so for Kirsten, um, like, and it was interesting because we tackled that as a team as well. And so as we were looking at upward mobility, we both had a shot, but she had a much better shot at getting that big raise. 
I was much more interested in learning and developing skills that I knew I could use outside of the workforce. And so while we were tag teaming debt, even after we paid off the debt, it was like, all right, how do we still continue to squeeze as much juice as we can out of this job, but also recognize that there's an endpoint and we need to make sure that we're setting ourselves up to pivot out of that successfully. And so at that point, with respect to my job, I was handling it. But I wasn't going as hard as I was in prior years. I wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. gunning for a promotion, um, which felt really good because at that point we'd already, you know, paid off our debt. And, and when you start thinking about like what's the real value in getting a job, it kind of felt like that added responsibility was going to take away from my at-home life. It was going to take away from my ability to build something outside of that nine to five. And so at that point, I was much more interested in our real estate portfolio in this new, greater world of content creation, which for us was very new at the time. Yeah, so Kirsten, what did that look like for you? Going for promotion or did you quit for a a new opportunity that paid you a lot more? It was going for promotions. Um, I did threaten to quit right before I went out for maternity leave, (laughs) but I ultimately (laughs) did not because they gave me a raise to keep me. Um, But yeah, it was a series of promotions. I had found a section of the company that had very like specific skill sets and required a lot of institutional and experiential knowledge. And so I just kind of dedicated myself to an area of the business and just gradually moved up the more that it grew. Um, But it was good. It was good until it wasn't, which is typically how these things go. I was promoted quite a bit. And then a reorg hit, which is pretty common in corporate America. We talk about this in the book, that the average tenure of a CEO these days is about five years. And so when you think Mm -hmm. about, and I'm sure some of the listeners have experienced this, how disruptive reorganizations can be, especially if you're in a place where you like your boss, you like your team, you like your workload, and then all of a sudden everything changes. And that's what happened with me. I liked where I was, and then all of a sudden we got shifted, and the priorities changed, and I needed to be in different places, and I needed to support China and Europe, and so I was taking 4 a.m. calls and 7 p.m. calls, and it just wasn't sustainable for me. I felt like I had learned everything that I needed to learn from the job and it was time to cash out. All right. So you both, but your, was your plan eventually to walk away the same way, Julian, like you kind of knew, okay, I'm going to be, you know, heading on this entrepreneurial path. Were you kind of just waiting for the right moment, Kirsten? Yeah, the plan was to, to hit a number in our bank account or in our investment portfolio before we walked away. And we were on track to hit that probably mid-2021. This was, of course, before we knew there was a global pandemic coming. But we were on yeah. track to hit it <laughs> mid-last year. And I had started to feel the pressure to leave or the decision to leave um, by the end of 2019, so about two years ahead of schedule. But we already had our business going. And so the question was, did I think I could make up for lost time or at least get back a sense of quality of life if I focused on this through 2020? you know, for the next couple of years. And so that's, that was kind of the catalyst of leaving. So you were definitely part of that great reshuffling, the great resignation. I quit of 2020. Three weeks before the pandemic started. And it was before oh, I guess the, <laughs> the start, the start of what they're calling the great resignation. I'm wondering is if like the initial round of furloughs where everybody was just kind of laid off, 
versus yeah. like actually leaving on their own. I think I was ahead of that curve of people just being like, you know, F this, I'm going to yeah. figure it out on my own. Well, that's the thing. Like they talk about the great resignation, but if you were approaching your career, I feel like the correct way, we you should be looking to leave or move up and move around, you know, through your career. So people act like, oh, is the great resignation a trend? I'm like, no, people are always going to be quitting, mm-hmm. which means we have job security, Kirsten, Julian and I like, okay, people are always going to need some guidance when it comes to their career. So I, I don't feel at all like even my, my business as a career coach like there's going to come a time when it's going to dry up people are not going to be making career transitions you know and, and getting to that place of being stalled nah y'all talk about um something that's really interesting the 15 year career and sort of how people can or should prioritize their goals through each stage of their career so that they can quit in under 15 years yeah. is that right can y'all talk about that yeah so the 15 year career was really just trying to disrupt the construct that a lot of us have that careers are this lifelong pursuit that you just continue mm-hmm. to work on it and it's a huge part of your identity like you lead with your career what you do who you are and so the 15 year career is actually encouraging people to look at careers as a phase in your life the same way we look at k-12 through education or a bachelor's degree or an advanced degree if you if you're a doctor or a lawyer where in a, in a stated period of time, you're there to accomplish a goal and then you're there to move on. And that could be to another career or it could be to early retirement or entrepreneurship. But we break it up into three phases. The first five years, if you have debt, it's really about continuing to live frugally and treat that debt as an emergency and pay it down. The second five years is really about skill acquisition, like Julian was saying, acquiring skills that are valuable in a market outside of just your employer. And then the last five years is really trying to figure out how to monetize those skills and move on and actually translate them into, into capital, into actual dollars and ramp up your investments while you're doing that. And so the, the idea is that after 15 years, you know, you should be able to check the box and say, I'm good here. And you might continue. You could decide that you want to stay in the latter phase because you are enjoying making great money and having a skill that's in demand. Or again, you can decide to cash out and just kind of do what you want to do with your time. Yeah. And this is also assuming that you're investing along the way, right? Correct. So like in addition <laughs> to paying yeah. debt and doing all of those things, you're you're building an investment portfolio or whatever it is, right? It could be in a, sitting in a brokerage account. It could be that you're focusing on um, funding your retirement account up front, but you're ideally putting yourself in a position so that at the end of this period, you have an option. To Kirsten's point, you don't have to walk away and go sip pina coladas. You may have the option to do that. But you could decide to transition and focus on being you know, the, the, the president of the HOA or someone that does something in your county or whatever it is, any number of things uh, that you could do to fill your time outside of just- Please don't be an HOA president. I was just about to say that. Like, no shade to HOA president. (laughs) Why is that the dream, Julia? I say that because imagine a world where more of us are actually able to do that job Mm. effectively. So that's why I'm calling it out. I just can't think of the more scum of the earth than like HOA presidents. Why are they so problematic? They so power Sorry, you distracted me. You distract me back, getting back to your point, <laughs> Juliet. It's funny because that fit, when you talk about the 15 year stage, I think I'm in like year 11 of my like career post college. And uh, wait, how old am I? I'm trying. I'm it's more than 11 years. It's like 12 or 13. But anyway, um, and it, it has sort of lined up in that I didn't approach it, you know, systematically that but I'm kind of like, Oh, I'm in that I was in the past five years acquiring all these skills. And then now I'm on my own, like you guys are monetizing them and creating this 
entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneurship journey for myself. So yeah, I definitely I mean, and would endorse that. And Julian, I want to talk to you. So what were some I know you mentioned blogging, YouTube, video editing, you know, I'm sure those types of skills, but what other skills were you leaning on or looking to build um, that? And you said real estate too. So can you talk about some of those skills that you were acquiring so that set yourself up so that rich and regular could be, you know, y'all's primary source of income? Sure. So the primary skill that I was focused on building was around marketing and branding. Uh, I, I Part of that was because that's what I studied in college. Um, but I learned very quickly how to make ideas grow how to curate ideas, um, how to communicate them. Um, and so I spent that last three, maybe four years of my career sort of a part of that organization, focusing more so on learning, right? It wasn't about trying to get the, the, the skill set or the job that I knew was gonna help me get a promotion. It was about what are the skills that I can learn, dealing with agencies, um, learning the fundamentals of building a brand from people who've done it with world-class brands, um, understanding the data, all of those things, creative storytelling, um, you know, to your point about videos and photography, like all of that kind of stuff, and even uh, influencer marketing. That's actually a, a tiny part of our book, and it was one of the things that really made me say, actually, I think I could do this, was because at that earlier stage, it was like year seven for me, seven out of the ten, um, was the company that I was working for decided to test out this little thing called influencer marketing. And I was like, oh, I don't know, but I remember cutting a really big check to cover this thing. And long story short, we paid a guy like $10,000 to take a vacation with his kids, uh, eat at a restaurant, uh, and, and basically just go have a good time because it was a hospitality company. Um, and every now and then, just for motivation, I go to his website because it's like a really old school website and it still has a ticker on it. And it's like 167 <laughs> page views. And so for me, yeah. that's like motivation. It's like, oh, wow, this guy was able to do something incredible. He's not a celebrity, um, but it was just very mm -hmm. intriguing for me. And so all of those skills and points in, in that particular story was enough for me to say, OK, as I'm thinking about my own quality of life. Do I believe that if I stepped outside of this world that is very comfortable and familiar, that I'd be able to figure it out? And the answer was yes, because I'd acquired enough of those skills that I knew that I could do some of these things on my own. I love that. And that's a, such a good message for anyone working nine to five and feeling like even if you feel like you don't have tons of career progression there, you still have access to other people and like free education if you're willing to chat with people and find out about them. And that's what I call like being entrepreneurial, you know, kind of moving within your within your zone at work. And what can you take advantage of? There's 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 intellectual property there that people have that they can share with you and you can really learn and leverage that. And I think that was so, I mean, so smart of you and so wise and not enough people working day to day think to actually like check in with such and such, even if you're in product, you know, or check in with the marketing team or advertising or whatever, you know, or if you're in vice versa, you're in, pro you're in uh, marketing to check in with the product team, how to build a product, a physical or a digital product and, and how all that works yeah, um, was, while you've got the free yeah. access. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say it was a huge aha moment for me because I, I had to get over the hump that you can't learn about something just because you aren't in that role, mm -hmm. right? I had to give mm -hmm. myself permission to say, actually, you can learn about whatever you want. Now, it's quite honestly a little difficult to do in certain roles and in certain companies. Some companies are better than others, but I was able to navigate that and extract as much value from that experience, even though some of the things that I was doing like wasn't being well received didn't mean that it wasn't good work, mm. didn't mean that that presentation or that idea wasn't feasible. It just 
because it wasn't accepted at work. And so once I flipped that switch and I realized I can take these same skill sets and storytelling and managing campaigns and just apply it to things outside of my job. Uh, and really, at that point, it's just about trying to find uh, a willing a customer that's willing to pay you. Yeah. Can we pivot and talk a little bit about y'all's investment strategy? Because you mentioned investing. Y'all sound like you're y'all are in real estate a little bit, we maybe were. a lot of bit. You can you were. OK, yeah. talk to me about your investing strategy, because I know that's also a key part of the book. It's not just about using your career lever but and wealth building, but it's also like, how do we accelerate that through investing? Yeah, so our we used to be real estate investors. We had a very small portfolio of two rental properties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two rental properties in our primary residence, so three houses all together. And we liquidated those in 2019 and 2020 to focus more so on digital entrepreneurship and other types of investing. And so today our- Is that because it was just a lot of work, like bandwidth wise? Uh, Not really. Yeah. Uh, we had a management company that managed those things uh, for us in terms of the day to day. Uh, but quite honestly, we had something to compare the work to. Exactly. Right. And, and again, I kind of felt as if at the time or leading up to that point, we were really subscribing to what I now consider a very traditional path to building wealth. You've got stock markets and real estate. Um, but once we became introduced to digital entrepreneurship and we had something to compare it to, and it was like the money that we were making in, you know, let's say a month just based off of brand campaigns, like by far eclipsed the value that we were earning on a rental property. And that's not to say mm -hmm. that rental properties are bad, but the particular properties that we had while they were good, it just wasn't necessarily worth the squeeze. I mean, and it was still a lot of work to do, even though we had a middleman, a management company, and they earned their 10% because they certainly made my life easier. But even still, when we combine the work, the paperwork, the follow-up, the back and forth, and just the sense of tension that you have when you own a physical property and know that somebody is in it, mm -hmm. after a while, once we had that compared to all of the other things that we'd done, we realized, actually, we just don't really want to do this anymore. Uh, and so we made the decision to say, you know what, let's invest in digital entrepreneurship. And that's kind of where we are now, like focusing on the creator economy. We have a new education and tech platform that we're in the process of building out. We have this book. We have all these other things. Uh, we just enjoy it. And it just, yeah. you know, there's, there's something to like the value in it aside from its profitability. But like we enjoy it a lot more than we do uh, being landlords. Uh, gotcha. I love that perspective. I think that's so smart, too. I mean, for people who maybe don't have a digital brand to focus on it, it can make sense to have that extra however much, yeah. you know, on top that you're getting from your renters. So what so now that you've you've liquidated your real estate properties, are y'all are you about to tell me that you're into like crypto and NFT? Are you a boring investor like me with your index funds? What What's what's inside your accounts? Let's talk about we it. We do dabble a little bit in crypto, but it's just a dabble. It ain't it ain't a substantial amount okay. of our portfolio, but we're diehard index fund investors. We are DIY investors and we love <gasps> index funds. I knew we think I liked it's the Joe. simplest path to wealth. Shout out to JL Collins. <laughs> and we invest heavily in index funds. We also uh, front-loaded our traditional retirement, so we no longer put a substantial amount of money in our traditional retirement accounts, our 401ks, um, and we just invest through taxable accounts like brokerages. We do have some tax advantage accounts. We have an HSA, and we have a SEP, IR, our SEP 401k, which is for um, entrepreneurs. But for the most part, we are done investing for our traditional retirement, life after 65. We're just going to let the money that's there sit 
And mm. we're just focused on kind of building that bridge fund in between now and then. So do y'all mind if I ask that question? How much, what was your goal? You said you mentioned a number goal that you had for, you know, walking away from nine to five life. What was that goal? I think at the time it was like 1.2 million, something like that. Um, okay. But this was before. So the, this is the challenge with creating a, a phi number or North Star and, and before you've had a chance to like fully live your life. At that time, it was before we had had our son when we created that number. And it was before we started to financially support or at least assist Julian's mom, who is financially insecure and needs a subsidy every month, essentially, mm -hmm. to afford to live. She lives off of Social Security. That amount is well below the poverty line. And so in order to give her the quality of life that we think she deserves, we have to help. And so when we created that number, it didn't include any of that stuff. It just kind of took our expenses as two dinks, double income, no kids, <laughs> and ex yeah. ex expanded it times 25 years or whatever the formula is. And so when we started realizing that it was very difficult to stick to a number because life is still evolving and changing and we had decisions around childcare and education that we still need to make, we just then started focusing on an overall income strategy with investments, mm -hmm. obviously propping up the total value of our portfolio. But yeah, that was that. I think our number was somewhere around the million mm -hmm. dollar ballpark. Well, also, you guys, it wasn't it wasn't a we're going to go live on a beach number and never make another cent. Obviously, right. you are you remind me a lot. I'm thinking of our rich journey. Yeah. Um, your counterparts in Portugal. I feel like they're you guys are another power couple in the finance space. <laughs> but like, obviously, they were able to retire by 40, but they ain't sitting on their hands. They're no. running a huge multimedia brand just like you guys are. So that's a source of income. Yeah. So you may not need to hit that million because, you know, you've got that money coming in and you guys are your own. Yeah. And that's the part you know, of the movement that I don't that, that I think gets a little cloudy, but I understand why, because when people are first introduced to it, they're introduced to it in a very traditional sense. But act to your point, the income is the secret there and, and especially when you are comfortable and you have a pretty good sustainable source of income and you know what it takes to create that income when you have that as an option you have so many other options in terms of what you're willing to do in exchange for money and certainly what you're willing to do in exchange of your time and I think for us that's really what we want um, for most people we want to just give us more options uh, and I would say specifically people of color who work in traditional corporate environments because we find that they're very um, focused on that one way of getting a job is really getting the next promotion and it's like that is one way and it's a popular way and there are certainly tons of tools and things that you can do to get that but we just want to make sure that they're aware of some of these other things that I think might be able to one give them an opportunity to earn more income, uh, but two, just have a better quality of life in the process. Not always, but at least they, we want to make sure that they're aware of that. It's about creating professional and financial resiliency, having additional income streams beyond just your nine to five. I mean, like I've been laid off before. We just had these huge layoffs from better.com. 3000 people lost their jobs just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, all sorts of play Peloton, you hear these like, you know, headline making layoffs. 
you no job is secure. Like it's just BS. No job is secure. And what I love about it is when you have other skills, like I always had brown ambition, for example, and it wasn't necessarily able to replace my income, but it was something like when I went independent last summer, it gave me a sense of structure. Like at least every week I'm gonna do BA and I'm gonna figure out Mandy money, you know, as I go along. And I love also, and maybe you guys talk about this as well, helping people figure out what kind of skills they can leverage as a consultant, you know, to actually work independently and even get getting work outside of your nine to five. Was that important for you too, Kirsten? I mean, I know, Julian, you know, you were building these skill sets. What sort of skills have you taken from your previous work um, through your nine to five and sort of applied to y'all's business? Yeah. So my previous work was on the product side of the business and it was kind of connecting our call centers with our technology department. And so I got a ton of experience in B2B relationships and partnerships as well as real-time conversations, customer service, and incentives. And so I think what I've learned from that is just how to position a offer or an idea as something that people actually want and get them to take action. And that's what we've applied to our business. I can understand that saving money is not the sexiest idea in the world. Index funds certainly are not the sexiest (laughs) investment if you look on anybody's algorithm. Speak for yourself. I love them. (laughs) You got to learn how to make a problem sexy. And you got to learn how Mm. to get people excited about something that is fairly simple and understand to understand. I think a lot of times we uh, assume that it has to be difficult to understand in order to be valuable, or it has to be expensive in order to be valuable. And in the case of investing and becoming a millionaire, the solutions are actually pretty straightforward. And what it requires is just a discipline and a commitment and maybe a, a different social path, a different type of community to encourage you to do the thing that you already know how to do. All right, let's take a quick break, BA fam. I will be right back with more from my conversation with the delightful Julian and Kirsten Saunders from Rich and Regular. Hey, BA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, 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 BA fam. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350. 50 million global monthly visitors. That's incredible. This is according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 150 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Okay, it's smart. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Brown Ambition. Just go to Indeed.com slash Brown Ambition right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Indeed.com slash Brown Ambition. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. All right, VA fam, we are back. I am back with my guest today, Julian and Kirsten Saunders, husband and wife, and the power couple behind the brand Rich and Regular. There's a real difference between people who get the knowledge and those who take action on the knowledge. And the more that I do my work, I get I, I feel like how teachers must feel when you look at a student and you're like, but you got all the information and you still didn't study or you didn't take that, you know, like what's going on and having to release that. Um, I, I, but but that is why there will always be, you know, a, an audience for people like you guys, too. I mean, because the people who want to do and take action like they will rise to the top, you know, um, and it's that inertia that is killing so, so many people. Uh, yeah. And I, I feel like as much as we want to, I don't know if you guys have this too, but I just want to like fix people's inertia. Like you can do it and like motivate, but you can't, you can't save or like push everyone. They kind of have to reach whatever rock bottom or whatever, you know, moment in time. As, as a creative takes. entrepreneur, that is really what, what inspires me. It's, it's how to move the people to your point in, in terms of inertia. It's like, how do I move them? How do I get them to care? more today than they did yesterday. And I think one of the things that we try to do is actually to lead less with education. I mm -hmm. think there's, there's still not enough, but I think more often than not, people are uh, trying to lead with education under the assumption that they're not doing these things because they don't know better. Mm -hmm. And I think the reality yeah. is there's a significant percentage of people who actually do know better, but they're simply choosing to do otherwise. And so for us, yeah. as frustrating as it can be, that is the creative challenge. Right. Is how do we inspire them? How do we move them? How do we get their attention? How do we break into the spaces where they are paying attention and help them understand why this particular message or these tactics are applicable to them? And so we, uh, one of the things that we live by is really aiming for the heart and not the head. And so you, you're not going to get a lot of stats and data while we, we have those things and we're ready to shoot them out. But I'm much more interested in helping people uh Think about the fact that their parents may be aging and whether or not they want to spend a lot of time being with their parents without having to ask someone for some time off or whether or not they want the opportunity to really nurture a relationship between their aging parents and their children mm -hmm. and give them an opportunity to be grandparents in a way that maybe your grandparents didn't have to be to you or to recognize what's happening in the larger landscape in terms of, gosh, women's rights or, you know, uh, wealth inequality and say, you know, your skill set as a product designer could be so useful for this nonprofit organization or your public speaking skills, you know, that you're using right now to motivate the call center. Imagine if you applied that to, you know, I'm not going to say HOA, but a different, <laughs> a different part of the world or your local community where impact may not necessarily be defined by you know, clicks on a website or dollars that are made. And so for us, that's really what drives us is to just help people connect those dots between wealth and like sort of broader social and cultural causes. Yeah, something earlier that you guys touched on and even just now is that multi-generational support, supporting families, supporting aging parents. And for black and brown families, it's just more likely that we are going to be in a position where we need and it takes a village and we need to support and uplift 
some family members. And we got a question to we do a, a Friday episode BA Q&A. And we got a question from a listener that got lots and lots of comments on IG about just that it was basically um, a partner who was upset, or questioning whether or not she should continue to allow her partner to subsidize his mother's income. And it sounds like you guys are in that situation. So can you talk a little bit about what helped you guys have that conversation? And kind of approach your I mean, you have your family unit, right? But what happens when you have family beyond your little unit who may need support? And as a couple, any any advice for couples who are in that situation on how they can approach it, and think about it so that you can kind of get to a some kind of compromise, and it's not so contentious. Um, you know, it's a work in progress. Um, it's something that you know started with me because my mom is the one that we're fun- that we're supporting, that we're financially supporting. Um, I saw it coming, uh, and for me, even as as when I was working my traditional job, that was in part what motivated me to always push for that job because I knew not only did I just want to make more because I wanted a better quality of life, I could see you know, and sense the bank account sort of dwindling on, on on her side. And so I knew that at any point I was going to have to step in. And so it really mattered to me uh, when I didn't get a job that I felt that I was qualified for because I was like, nah, this is, you know, the stakes are a lot higher for me. Um, and so there was that. Uh, and even when we met for the first time, it was something that came up. We sort of, you know, our, our first conversation about money actually led to our first argument. Uh, but that was part of the yes, sort do. of baggage, you know, <laughs> looking back, that was part of the baggage that I was carrying, right? Part of the reasons why I was so tight with money, because there were all of these, these, these sources of tension that I was thinking about, not only just growing up in poverty in New York, but also knowing that, like, gosh, you know, if we're going to go out and ball out tonight, I'm going to feel really bad if I get the phone call from my mom tomorrow, knowing that she needed 200 or $300 for something. And so all of those little things sort of factored into the way mm-hmm. that I managed my career. It bled into how we managed our relationship. Uh, and so it really just started with having conversations. One, having conversations with myself. Two, finding the courage to um, talk about money to my mom, who is an elder and also has to overcome you know, sort of these generational differences, uh, like teaching her that it's okay to be vulnerable, to share these things, to admit that you're struggling. Don't wait until the last second. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't matter what happens. We're going to be here to support you. And oh, by the way, by we, I mean me and my wife. And so you don't just have to tell me. Mm-hmm. You can tell either one of us if I'm not there. So it took, a, it honestly, like it took seven years just to get her comfortable with realizing that we're a team and you're going to be taking care of her. being your mother. Yes, yes, to get her on board. Um, But yeah, yeah, like it was just slowly peeling away. And um, even after we made progress, we realized that, you know, she goes back into her own world. And so we have to invite her back into this world where we're a team. You know, she's not really accustomed to uh, village support. And so it's it's been interesting, Um, but I'm grateful, you know, Kirsten's on board and um, it's been it's been helpful. But we, we... Got to keep talking and and try to make talking about it fun or funny because I I find that that helps a lot too. And mention it to your friends. Do y'all have a set amount? Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say mention it to your friends. Like it is Mm -hmm. something that I think according to data, 48% of Americans over 40 are dealing with. And so you're likely not alone if, if you are feeling the pressure or your spouse is feeling the pressure and you're not aligned on what the approach should be. It's something that we're all going through and this is the consequence of companies not thinking about retirement. They kind of pass that 
pass that responsibility on to the employee after they got rid of pensions. And so messages like saving and all of it, like you're going to experience a generation that didn't necessarily do what they were supposed to do because their parents were taken care of in their retirements. And so it's something that we're all collectively as a society going to deal with. In some circles, it's already been called a crisis. In others, it's just kind of like this weird social dynamic that we're managing as individual families. But I'd encourage people to talk about it. Yeah, and I think it's... You said you saw it coming, Julian, and I think some of us out, you know, you may see it coming in your own quiet way, and maybe you're the spouse. And I feel like if you're the if you're the actual daughter or son or, you know, um, child, it may be harder for you to see your parents in that vulnerable position. Sometimes it's like the out the, the other spouse who can kind of who maybe sees it coming. And how do you even broach that subject? Like, are we going to talk about this? You know, grandpa seems a little unhealthy. What's going to happen if grandma's alone and what are we going to do yeah. like my husband and I I I've, I know I'm stuck in New York I want to go back to Georgia for Stacey Abrams and other reasons but um you know his parents are here and you know they are they are similar to your mom Julian just on a fixed income right now and it is nothing 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 it's crazy right you work really hard and you got nothing and we're just starting to have that conversation so did y'all kind of create here's how much she needs here's how much we're comfortable as a stipend each month or as a you know, contribution on a monthly basis. Yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty all hands on deck situation. Uh, just getting all the documents in order, creating a formal budget for her for the very first time, putting her basically on a spending plan, um, helping her even. Oh, so you went all oh, all the way. Oh, yeah. she was probably like, "Excuse me, everything, <laughs> everything." Um, giving oh, her man. a general timeline in terms of this is how many years you have, reevaluating her investment strategy because she had a financial advisor that, you know, again, she had pennies in there, so he wasn't really looking at, you know, her account uh, with with any Mm -hmm. sense of real care. And so looking at that stuff and say, you're 70 years old, there's no real reason for you to be invested in these kinds of things. You should be drawing down. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, just helping her get to that point um, was really, really um, helpful. And even taking it a step further, which was the big one, and helping her realize that a significant percentage of the wealth that she'd amassed was all in her home, um, which she really couldn't necessarily access and so and really afford, right? And so getting her to a point where she felt like selling the home was actually the best thing for her so that she could downsize, have more cash that she could actually use to do other mm-hmm. things, travel, see her friends, cover for her medicine. Like it was the first time anyone I think had ever really intervened on that level because she's also single and all, all of these other reasons she was not a college graduate and and so it was it was I felt more than anything proud that we were able to actually help uh, and even now like proud that we are able to give her a quality of life we moved right. her you know what less than half a mile away from where we are now so she can see so she's down in ATL you're from is she was she in New York before no she was in uh, she was in another suburb a uh, suburb Potter of Springs. Atlanta but she was oh, living yeah, okay. in um, senior housing, which was mm-hmm. subsidized by the government, which is how she was able to afford it. But when COVID hit, they obviously canceled all of the mm-hmm. interactions between mm-hmm. seniors. So a lot of the amenities she had moved there for weren't available. And then seeing you know, ambulances every week was just doing a number on her mental health. And so we realized, terrifying. yeah, we realized yeah. it's probably, it was either not the right senior community for her. She needs something a little more active. She's, you know, a little, a little spicy <laughs> or she just wasn't <laughs> ready for senior housing yet. And so we started, we moved her to a standard apartment, which is obviously not subsidized by the government. And in the neighborhood that we live in, 
expensive. It's a, it's a luxury apartment that has the amenities she needed, like an elevator and covered parking and access to a grocery store within walking distance. And so, yeah, that decision, going back to your point about a monthly stipend, our stipend has increased over time. We now spend about $1,500 a month on just making sure that she's comfortable. And I don't know that it won't increase again. Her rent just went up again, like everybody else's this year. And so mm -hmm. we'll see how it progresses and what decisions we need to make, but we treat it the same way we would if we had had a second child and needed childcare, where it's just, it's a responsibility. You figure out how to cover it, you get creative, and you find community that offers resources and solutions that you might not have thought of because they've already been through it. I mean, I look to you guys with such respect and also as like goals, because to be able to support our parents, and we have a young son too, and just feel like everyone's good. That seems like a beautiful place to be in. And I mean, it's pressure, right? It's pressure. And you got to keep those gears going and keep the business going and all that. So I, I just I, I see you acknowledge that pressure. But I also am just I applaud you for that. It's thank you something to be really yeah. proud of. I appreciate the realistic applause. <laughs> <laughs> because, I know y'all tired. <laughs> yeah, because like, you know, it, I don't know that that tension ever really goes away. But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. you know, they're getting older. And so as I think about how I would want to spend this last chapter, like knowing that she's nearby, knowing that we can on any day be able to be there for her and knowing that, you know, our son, who, you know, will be five next month, has the type of relationship with his grandparents that we just never had mm -hmm. um, is really uh, powerful. And so, um, you know, I remember having a conversation with someone about what, what to do with the money. Because I'll be, I'll be completely honest, at first I was hesitant. Kirsten was the one that was really much more willing to um, take this approach. I was much more mindful of what else we could do with that money, right? I was looking at it from an investing mm -hmm. standpoint. Um, but looking back, I think is one of the best decisions um, we've ever made. Um, and so, you know, and again, it's part of the tension, right? <laughs> you don't, you don't, yeah. you know, you, you pay attention to what that money could do. But at the end of the day, there's some things you just can't put a price on. And, um, you know, we've got a lot of memories, a lot of memories. And that's, that's, that's yeah. awesome. She got you in the heart, just like you said. You got it. You got to think about your heart. <laughs> That's why they call it personal finance, right? You're right. Yeah. You're right. She got anything. People about obsess it. too much about trying to do things the right way yeah. on paper. You know, giving $1,500 away sounds like not the best strategy, but when you see what you get in return, yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. That's why I think it's so important for people like y'all and even myself to be doing this work because we come with that perspective and of, of understanding. Yeah. That yeah. it's not just about dollars and cents and like what's on a calculator at the end of the day. Exactly. And yeah. reminding people that it's not forever. Like, unless she lives to be 700 like a sea turtle, like there will be <laughs> terrible a to think that, but it's true. <laughs> like, you know, like this is. I hope she's not listening <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> knock on wood obviously wishing yeah. her a long prosperous life but again <laughs> thinking of, of of your of your life and seasons thinking about your financial situation and seasons has been more beneficial for me than creating mm -hmm. this plan that I apply pressure to stick to and I don't pivot every you know I don't consider the variables to change course yes. it's not ideal particularly for people of color and women of color can I ask y'all really quickly, I know we are approaching the end, but we get this question all the time. And I know everyone's approach is a little bit different. But when it comes to your son and investing and saving for him, what's your do you have a strategy there or kind of a path that you're on right now for this season as a five year old for him? 
I look forward to employing him uh, this year. Uh, yeah, I think he deserves it. We certainly post um, enough pictures and reels of him on Instagram for him to be He's considered really a model at this point. Um, and so there's that. We have our 529 account. Um, but yeah, I think more than anything, I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to you know opening a custodial uh, IRA this year and paying him off of you know the payroll of the business and being able to help him uh, build wealth. Because again. You know, I didn't start earning money until I was 15 or 16 years old, and that was like $50 mm-hmm. a week or something mm-hmm. like that. And so to be able to give him a head start, I think, is is really powerful. And again, like that combined with the the type of perspective that he will have on family oh, or, or even just, I was just about to say parents, that. like having active parents that are able to bring him on business trips with him. Like, I think his his upbringing and his perspective on the world will be so different. Um, and it won't just mm-hmm. be because he has a pot of money that's been working or growing in the background. It'll, it'll be all of those things combined. So That yeah, he's seen we, a different way to be successful yeah. than like a traditional yes. dad goes to work from nine to five. I see him before yes. bedtime kind of thing. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Well, thank y'all so much. Or wait, Kristen, were you going to Kirsten, were you going to say something? No, I was just going to build on the point, but I think we landed it. So we're <laughs> stuck the landing. I love it. Thank y'all so, so much for joining Brown Ambition. It's been such a delightful conversation. I can't say enough. Congratulations again on the new book. Y'all go out and buy it. Is it out yet? Is it when's it publishing? June 14th. June 14th. Okay, y'all got some time, but you can probably pre-order it, right? We'll put yes, a pre-order, you can pre-order link in there. Audiobook, paper, uh, hardcover, mm-hmm. Kindle, ebook, any types of forms you can pre-order. Buy copies for your friends, your friends' friends, your, your mama, your daddy, whatever. Cashing out. Win the wealth game by walking away by Julian and Kirsten Saunders, the founders of Rich and Regular. And go check out their podcast. Go check out their YouTube series and their IG. Um, at the It's called At the Table. Money, money, on the money, table. On the table. money on the table something about a table i got it <laughs> all right <laughs> can't thank y'all enough for joining brown ambition thank y'all take take care thank Maybe. you thank you so much The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.